Hello, welcome to the Coaching Manual Podcast. I'm Pavel Williams, and this week we're joined by Jason Blake, who's the Academy Manager at Burnley FC. Now, Burnley's a really interesting case study because they're a newly promoted Premier League team that has to deal with some of the same problems we face at grassroots. That is, their academy has a limited budget, and they also face competition from a lot of local rivals, so they're constantly juggling things like logistics for facilities, for pitches, for training time, um, whilst also trying to be very proactive and progressive and develop players for the England national team. So, Jason has a lot of really interesting ideas, he's a very forward-thinking coach, so I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. If you do, please subscribe. Head to thecoachingmanual.com forward slash podcast and you'll find links for iTunes, for SoundCloud, for RSS, and also join up for the email newsletter. You'll get 26 free videos from Southampton's academy, so you'll see exactly what they're doing in their academy to develop so many talented football players. To kick off the interview, I asked Jason just to give a really quick overview of how he got started in football and how his career progressed to the point that he's now uh, one of the youngest academy managers in the country. Probably around about 20, when I was 23 years old, um, I was playing non-league football uh, and a friend of mine mentioned about uh, some coaching opportunities at Southampton in the community. Uh, and it was something I'd never really thought about, but he was a coach um, and I, I was very interested by what he did. Uh, so I went to Southampton to, to meet the, the community manager um, and we spoke about uh, coaching qualifications and, and different experience you could gain through the community department uh, and it was something that I started to do. So I volunteered for maybe five or six months of just shadowing another coach, uh, looking at how sessions were delivered within schools programmes, after school programmes, uh, grassroots clubs. Um, and kind of evolved from there really and I got into the role uh, part-time initially working around schools and that increased holiday courses to eventually go in as a full-time kind of community officer uh, and then through the relationship between the community and the academy at Southampton eventually started to um, go and watch development centres uh, and as things happen sometimes a coach can't make it so eventually sure, yeah. the opportunity came to maybe take a warm up while a coach was going to be late and then a coach might not make it and so you kind of earning your credibility with the staff uh, to eventually get to the point where was offered a, a, an assistant coach role in the academy at Southampton um, which followed on a, a year or so later to a, a lead coach role mm-hmm. um, that was with the younger age groups which I really enjoyed um, but I always kind of anticipated I'd like to work at the 15, 16 age groups. Mm-hmm. I always uh, working around schools. I enjoyed interacting with, with players of that age and, and the demands of the game at that age. Uh, and I wasn't sure if, if there was going to be that opportunity at Southampton or, or it could have been a long time away. So I looked down the road at Bournemouth, mm-hmm. uh, went, went to go and speak with them. I wanted to do my A-licence as well. Uh, which obviously 11 v 11 coaching was going to be very beneficial for. Yeah, totally. uh, so I met Derek Old, the Centre of Excellence Manager at Bournemouth and, and, and liked him and liked the club, liked the feel of the club. So I made the decision to, to leave Southampton to go to Bournemouth yeah. um, and took their under 15s. Uh, following year I took the under 16s um, and again from a part-time role uh, funding came from the Football League to incorporate a technical development officer the club offered me that role, so I started working across all the age groups doing technical work, um, and eventually um, became the, the centre of excellence manager at the club, uh, which was which was interesting. We were in administration at the time, so many challenges. wasn't always about football on the pitch. Um, then the opportunity came where the manager at the time, Eddie Howe, moved to, to Burnley. 
Uh, and after six months, at the end of his first season, he, he gave me a call and mentioned about the 21s role. Um, perhaps wasn't a role that was ever on my radar, uh-huh. but it was a very interesting one and, and it was one I, I felt was an opportunity too good to turn down to work with players of that not quite first team bracket but trying to bridge that gap um, so I, I accepted mm-hmm. then the E P happened um, and I think the the club at the time Burnley had a, a very close look at the structure and um, wanted to make sure the P was something they, they incorporated into the academy and um, the head of youth moved on and so during that initial period of the EPPP preparation they asked if I'd be acting head of youth and just to kind of start the process uh, and the more and more we saw the depth of the EPPP I think it, it almost bound me to, to the role that when sure. eventually the club asked if I wanted to take the role full time um, and by that stage it was we had done so much that it was difficult to say no by then yeah, I can imagine. and here we are now so, just to go right back to the very beginning, what do you think you gained that still influences the way that you manage and the way that you coach today by working with the younger age groups at the very start of your coaching pathway? Um, I think first and foremost, I think it was both the players and my enjoyment of football and coaching and playing and, and, and being in the environment really, even when you go back as far as the grassroots football and working in schools, if if you go to those after school sessions and you've got no energy, no enthusiasm and you don't try and enjoy it, mm-hmm. then the kids aren't going to have a good experience, the coaches aren't going to have a good experience. So I think they were really important lessons early on. Mm-hmm. Um, because let's not forget at the same time, you're trying to develop your coaching practice so your thoughts all the time are about what you've learned in courses or you know the ethos of your, your club and, and at the same time you're trying to make sure the kids are enjoying it. and. I think that's got to stick even working all the way through the age groups to the to the 21s as I have and even now as a, a kind of office environment in the academy we make sure enjoyment is, is central to what we do but allied with hard work as well. Yeah I'm sure. Is it is it a real conflict between enjoyment and competition because obviously there's a discussion around the fact that kids get demotivated if they lose or some kids you know, drop out of the game because they're not making it in the academy environment, which has necessarily has to be a progressive, competitive environment. How do you sort of remedy some of those challenges between what kids kind of instinctively want and what's necessary from a football or, unfortunately, even a business perspective, I suppose? Of course, I think, uh, if I think back to the time with, with the, you know, the foundation phase guys at Southampton, um, the, the players governed it himself although they were under 10 I remember thinking that we never really ever spoke about winning games but they wanted even in under 10's academy matches they wanted to beat West Ham they wanted to beat Chelsea um, and it was just a case of facilitating that really because you never de, you, you never kind of devalued that with the players but we always had the development attitude in what we were doing but the players managed that and we never spoke about scores but as players do they remember so when we lost to Chelsea the next time we played them the boys would be talking about we lost to these last time don't lose so certainly in my time at Southampton the players managed that but then as you go up the age groups and, and the balance changes a little bit it's um, it's developing that winning mentality but not winning at all costs and mm-hmm. I think you could probably interview every academy manager and they still wouldn't have the definitive answer but I think it's always ensuring that if you if you coach the right things and the right processes then the score should take care of itself mm-hmm. 
um, and, and try to ingrain that in the players again with, with good characteristics of hard work and mm-hmm. wanting to learn so I think the important thing is that coaches don't try and dictate that and they don't try and make winning the outcome mm-hmm. um, and that can be a challenge at times at all levels uh, I think academy football the majority of coaches I, I, I see and have worked with have that now and, and it isn't about trying to win games and I think it's been said in the past that you have Midi Mourinho's on the touch line I'm not seeing that anymore No. Um, so that's very positive definitely What about the arguments that perhaps academy football isn't competitive enough um, obviously we talked uh, just before we started recording about the, the B leagues and some of the suggestions from the FA but ha- what's your take just gut instinct on the idea of having you know, a lower league where academy players, under 21 players, can go in and really compete to learn to get that experience? I think, obviously, with the EPPP and the 21s league, there's a lot of talk now that, that it hasn't provided that competitive nature that clubs are craving and, and players of that not quite in the first team are craving. Mm-hmm. The challenge, upon listening to and, and reading a report from Greg Dyke, was we loan players out, but the challenge of that is. Do they play? Mm-hmm. Not all the time. Mm-hmm. Does the manager share the same teaching and, and development philosophies as us? Well, th- their job is to win the game and, and retain their job and, and to be successful. So that that's a very difficult balance. Um, and also the, the challenge of finding a club with the right playing strategy and philosophy that we're trying to teach our players, which becomes very difficult. So from a logical point of view, having that, that kind of B-league structure and, and many other leagues in Europe do it now from a logical point of view your players would still be in your building they would be playing under your staff they would be playing they would be following the club philosophy so from a development point of view I think I think it could be beneficial equal then that they would be playing against adults mm-hmm. and you listen to a lot of um, ex-professionals that talk about at the beginning of their careers they were playing you know as a 16 17 year old in, in reserve leagues playing against senior players and, and how beneficial that was to their development now we probably don't have that at the moment in, in the 21 structure so much now we do know you can play some overage players but again um, it's not very common so it, it's definitely for me something that I think could be beneficial I can understand some of the challenges that that's you know the media and, and, and inside the game has come out um, there doesn't seem to be too much trouble in the, in the other leagues in, in and around Europe that do it. Uh, we talk a lot about the players that progress through the B systems at, at those clubs. So the challenge is whether the game will in, in, embrace it and whether they'll give it the time to really see if it flourishes. Um, but certainly from a development point of view of the players at Burnley or, or I guess from any, any academy manager's point of view, it would give us greater control on the environment that our young players were being exposed to. So it would give you a better opportunity to bring players through to ultimately to Burnley first team level and that's that was the key role uh, of absolutely. the academy. How how much of a role or how much responsibility do you feel as an academy for developing players that will be England or international class players? Uh, f- first of all our philosophy is we, we try and, and probably very influenced by the Southampton model was we try to produce players that are competent to play in the Premier League. Um, now if you look at our model 
our success is probably Jay Rodriguez as being the perfect advert for a player from the local area that came in at uh, under 11, been through the whole system, scholar, pro, been out on loan, um, played in the first team, transferred to the Premier League. So as an academy kind of uh, model, that's, that's the benchmark. A player that's local, comes through the entire system. At the time, we weren't in the Premier League, so we recouped uh, a high transfer fee for him, uh, and he went into the Premier League, and now he's playing for his country. So for us, that's the perfect example of, of what we're trying to achieve. Um, and I think, again, can't speak on, on behalf of other clubs, but that's our aim, is everything we do, we're trying to do, have the best staff, have the best players, the best environment. Some things we can't affect, you know, no disrespect, but we're probably not going to have the facilities of Man City or Southampton. Um, but we try to be creative in other ways with that. Um, but certainly, I think, with that kind of attitude to try and produce players, using Jay Rodriguez as an example, yeah to benefit the national team, it, it, I think it works hand in hand. And if we're successful with Jay mm. and, and other players, hopefully in the future, it can only benefit the national setup. As a relatively small club, compared to certainly some of the ones you just mentioned, certainly the clubs in the local area, do you feel like there is too much emphasis on um, the top sort of five, six clubs in terms of developing players and they get a lot of leeway? And it, is it at the detriment of smaller clubs? Does it make it more challenging for you? Uh, I I perhaps didn't agree with the Triple P, the best players with the best coaches at the best clubs, because there's some very good coaches working at Cat 3 clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I perhaps disagreed a little bit with that. Uh, from a, a Cat 3 perspective, there are challenges with, with the bigger clubs and, and certainly sometimes um, access to uh, things like games programmes are, are, are a real big challenge. Uh, but there's some good work going on, not just at our club, but, but some of the clubs that we travel to as well and the staff that work there, we, we have lots of dialogue and we know it's a challenge, and particularly in the northwest, where it's a very competitive area of professional football. Um, but again, being creative, we, we find ways to, to, to kind of work around that. And it's important, I, th- I think the football family is very important, so having relationships with Manchester United Man City, Liverpool, Everton as an example of the, the, the clubs locally. I think that's important, but equally we have to remember that we're also being competitive against them, so particularly in terms of recruitment. So I think it's got to be a respectful but yet competitive nature, sure. I believe, yeah. How do you differentiate yourself if there's a very talented player in your local area and scouts have picked up on him, you want to go have a conversation about bringing him maybe into the academy at some stage, but he's also had an offer from you know maybe an Everton or another local team. How do you kind of differentiate and say look we're going to help you out better than ever and because we we kind of have two philosophies with that first and foremost it is our biggest selling point at Burnley is, is we have an amazing family feel to the club mm-hmm. uh, something that, that's been developed and, and generated over many many years um, and when when players parents brothers sisters granddads aunties uncles come in the door there's an amazing feel about the place and, and you know whether it's the training ground supervisor that meets them in the car park and brings them down into the, the main training building, uh, whether it's the coaching staff, we, we try to treat people the way we would want to be treated wherever we go. Uh, and I think that's very successful uh, and we get a lot of positive feedback on that. Um, coupled with actually the location of the training ground is in a very beautiful na- national mm-hmm. trust area and, and more so the families love coming there because it's such a, a, a calming and beautiful environment. So that's quite a big thing as well. 
However, we know we're not always going to be successful in, in challenging those clubs to recruit players. So we also have an aftercare policy. So, you know, first contact, last contact, where um, we might not get them on this occasion, but if we deal with them correctly, we never try to play games against other clubs where don't go to them because they'll let you down on X, Y and Z. We encourage people to explore avenues and options, and if it isn't right on this occasion for us and the, the player and the family, we hope because of the care we've given them on that process, that should they go to a Man City, for example, and they don't get offered a scholarship, hopefully they'll retain the, the memory of how well they were treated at Burnley, the feeling they were given, that we would have a chance then mm-hmm. for them to come back down. So we kind of look at it in two ways. That's interesting. How do you deal with players who uh, maybe have been through the programme for a number of years, but they're just not quite making that, that bridging that gap, not quite making the next step on, and you find a player from a local area who's a little bit more talented, maybe dropped out of another club, you want to bring him into your squad. How do you balance that relationship between sticking with the players that you've backed for a few years versus looking at bringing a little bit more talent in? I think for young players, that's the challenge of being in an academy environment. We, we, we know, particularly in my experience of grassroots as well, when I was a young player, was the love of the game and the enjoyment, and then the academies offer you that little bit of something different. Effectively, it's a football education. So there has to be some realisation from the players that, that there will be those challenges of potential players coming in. Um, but that's maybe life skills and development as well. We, in terms of squad logistics, we manage lower numbers. Mm-hmm. So the one thing we, we believe is essential is game time. And if excuse me, if a player does come out of a, a Liverpool and they come in on trial or they sign, it shouldn't affect the rest of the group in the game time they get given. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that to be very important. Um, and it can be a challenge at times and, and, and we're always trying to improve the process of how we do it. But you have to be very sensitive because th- these are still these are still young boys that uh, want to enjoy the game, but they're hopefully you know they've got aspirations to be the next you know Champions League winner or, or Premier League winner, and and that can be difficult because when you do have to give them sometimes the bad news of, of not being up to it and being released, uh, it has to be done in such a sensitive way and. and a way where you try not to devalue the game and their love of the game and hopefully their, their motivation to re- remain in the game. Um, we always highlight that it's just an opinion of our football club and our staff. We encourage every player to prove us wrong. Um, we want them to to remain in the game, whether that's grassroots or, or the professional game. And we try to give them positive exit routes according to their desire. So we, we won't just say, right, we'll put you at these four or five clubs. They might want to return back to grassroots for a while and you know we're always trying to improve our grassroots links and trying to make sure we can give players signposts back to the environment that's right for them. Uh, again, I don't think any club has, has the definitive answer on how to do it. I think the key thing is always to put yourself in their, in their shoes, whether they're you know, a 13-year-old boy or whether it's the mum and dad that have been bringing them for the last five years, three times a week and for a game. It's I think empathy is really important. Let's talk about the... Uh, day-to-day within the academy how first of all it's basics with the different age groups how often are you actually at, um, in contact with the players and how much uh, training game time do the players get again part of the EPPP with, with the difference between uh, the different category statuses is, is contact time mm-hmm. so ours we're, we're still two nights a week training uh, and then Saturday mornings training and then a game on a Sunday mm-hmm. so we used to have it so it was spread out every evening. 
but we felt there wasn't much interaction between age groups and players, you know, older players kind of mentoring the younger players and the younger players interacting with the older ones. So we went for two training nights where there's two training slots and the younger groups come in first and then the 13s, 14s and the older boys come in afterwards. Um, we wanted that interaction between the players. We wanted the interaction between the staff. And it's important that the staff don't just know their own age group. Uh, so we felt that was really important. Equally, we introduced the, the school release programme for the 15s and 16s. Um, that's coming to the end of its first full season with us. And still some work needs to be done on it to get it right, but the schools have been great. Just um, explain how that works for listeners who may be done. Well, what we do is um, we get access to the players to come out of school for one day a week. Uh, but as part of that day we supplement it with their education time as well so we we don't devalue their academic performance and development um, we hold that as important as their football development so they'll come out they'll train twice during the day they'll be involved in analysis sessions they'll have their education as well uh, but equally they're around the training ground on days when the first team players and staff are about the 21 staff in the senior academy environment uh, and again, that, that exposure for the for the players and and the academy staff that come in for that is is so valuable, really important. Um, the biggest challenge again is empathy towards parents and the travel. Um, we recruit from the whole of the northwest, so it can be anywhere from kind of between Manchester and Crewe. Uh, you know, we can go into West Yorkshire. We can go, you know, as far as Fleetwood and beyond. So some of the travel that the parents have to do, you know, the Liverpool region as well can be a challenge. Bearing in mind it's rush hour, midweek, mm -hmm. we have to have empathy for that. And, you know, just to, to break across three midweek evenings is we're trying to get the balance between getting the players in, but also what's feasible for families as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, the families are very responsive to that. There'll be times when... You know they might be having difficulty, and we find ways to to overcome those hurdles. Mm -hmm. Really important, which again comes back to our philosophy of being a family club and, and doing everything we can whilst trying to develop young players. Yeah, that, I mean that comes across sort of something like with empathy, just over and over again. And something that's maybe lacking at some of the bigger clubs that you you hear stories from, you hear parents or you know players that work there. It's it's interesting to hear that word come up again and again and again. <laughs> Let's talk about the sessions within that um, training time. Is it sort of 90 minutes, two hours? How do you sort of structure that training time that you get, limited as it is? We, we work in the academy on a 90-minute, a, a, a hour-and-a-half session. Yeah. Um, in a pre-academy, it's for an hour because mm -hmm. they are young and we want to try and protect them. We, and with pre-academy, the nature is the players are probably going to four or five different pre-academy sessions a week. Sure. So we try to protect their, you know, physical development and not over playing them and exposing them but in the academy we go for 90 minute sessions um, and those sessions are broken down around kind of 15 to 20 minute slots depending on whether it's technical work whether it's physical work mm -hmm. um, we believe in coaching uh, we have a coaching culture so there's been much said about let the game be the teacher there's been much said about stop stand still we try to incorporate um, all the different coaching methodologies in what we do but equally it always has to revolve around the players that they've always got to be the focal point we know the syllabus we know hopefully what they'll achieve year on year uh, but again and it, we, we know it players learn at different rates players learn in different ways and 
One of the biggest challenges in terms of our P journey has maybe been taking the focus away from the practice to the player, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of clubs have had. And um, that's ongoing work, the work with the FA. And we have Martin Diggle coming from the FA as our, our youth coach educator as well, who works very closely with the staff, kind of running parallel with their youth module development to align with the, the kind of coaching philosophy we want within the football club. Um, we actually believe in the FA model. Um, and I see your future game document mm-hmm. on the shelf there. Yep. We I've actually done some courses with Martin. Um, he's my youth mod three tutor. Brilliant. Yeah. He, he's very, very good. Very, very good. good. Yeah. Um, and and I, and I think the relationship with the FA is is you know reflected in, in people like Martin Diggle and, and their enthusiasm to affect our thinking, not just in terms of whether it's the coaches, whether it's the practices, but Martin's come in and sat on some of our E Triple P football and coaching philosophy meetings about how we want to build our academy and uh, you know if the FA are taking that role in, in working with clubs then, then I think that's a really positive thing um, and, and again going back to the philosophy it all works around what's right for the players mm. um, we are looking at different ways that we can we can work maybe outside of just pure football coaching which there's so much research and so much arguments of so many things that the, the challenge is always contact time yeah. and schools, what they're doing, what families and players are able to do outside, um, you know, how much of play is worked with coaching. And, and again, there's no definitive answer. I remember, and, and probably uh, the, the biggest lesson I learned when I was at Southampton was there's no one coaching practice that is the holy grail that, that develops players. Um, and I used to go and watch Gordon Strachan and Steve Wigley and George Burley and George Prost and all the you know coaches in the environment at Southampton when I was uh, a part-time coach. And part of me at the time felt that they were going to do a session that I would take and that would be the session that did it. Uh, eventually, when I worked out that that isn't the case, uh, that's probably when my coaching development and philosophy really started. And and I think it's important with within our academy that our young coaches and, and our experienced coaches are working hard to understand the players and their needs as opposed to what practice will give you. Because um, a practice can look similar for an under-12s group and it can look similar for an under-21s group, but there's two very different outcomes and, and perceptions of what we're trying to achieve through it. So when you talked about the curriculum within the academy, um, just explain what that looks like a little bit. Is that literally here's a batch of sessions? Is it here's a philosophy now go and work on your own? How much kind of guidance do the coaches get and how much is left to the coaches to develop themselves? I think I think the E Triple P has had, had quite a, a strong influence on this and we're probably at the stage at the moment where we're still giving coaches libraries of sessions to work from to ensure the players are getting the outcomes that the academy are, are trying to achieve. Um, what we encourage the coaches to do is to be creative within that, um, whether that's use of technology, whether that's different coaching styles, different coaching methodology. Uh, I remember working with a coach at Southampton called Kevin Braybrook. Uh, he took the under-15s and I would watch the way that he would get co- uh, players to coach players, um, which was very interesting. Um, also players to, to deliver parts of the session. Um, also to, to use little micro sessions as way of ways of understanding learning that are taking place in the session. Now we try to incorporate those kind of methods in, in the way we work. The challenge of any kind of player ownership is how much to give them, how much is coach led or facilitated. 
Um, and that's what we're trying to do at the moment. So within the foundation phase, it's very technically um, weighted. Then as they go into the, the, the first stage of the youth development phase, the challenge of changing schools, bigger pitches, um, growth, big challenges. We try to not overemphasize information mm -hmm. and we've, we've created our syllabus to be um, adding layers very slowly and progressively. Mm. Um, and then that kind of second element of the youth development phase, that kind of 14s, 15s, 16s, where it's almost similar to the school model that now we're starting to think about a career in football. Mm -hmm. And it's like taking your options and, and preparing for exams. So then the emphasis gets a lot more on, on the detail and, and um, rather than disguise learning that we try to use within the, the kind of up to and including the 14s, 15s, 16s, it, it becomes a very different ball game and the coaching takes a different look. Mm -hmm. um, the strength we have at our academy is we have a very diverse group of coaches that all work for the same goal but they work in very different ways and again wrapped around the needs of the player. So Terry Pashley, our youth team coach, uh, many years of experience, uh, is a great mentor to some of the younger coaches in, in the knowledge of the game. Uh, Andy Farrell, uh, the, the assistant youth team coach again. Um, so for our young enthusiastic coaches that work in the younger age groups, to be able to go and tap into that knowledge of the game that those coaches have is, is so important. Um, and, and that you can't provide that in terms of a, a syllabus or a curriculum. That, that's just experience of people working in the game. Uh, we have some ex-pros in the group who, again, bring great knowledge to the players. But then we have some good te te uh, technical coaches as well. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that is great benefit to the players. I like that idea of um, almost like picking your options and, and having those parallels with a school leading to university, leading to career options, because I receive a lot of email questions about uh, player positioning, player specialisation. Within your academy, is it players rotating, players play lots of different positions, and does that change throughout the year group? We, in the foundation phase, there's, there's no defined positions, so they will rotate. Um, I think even in younger age groups, sometimes you can see players gravitate to a certain position um, and they'll still get exposed. We, we work on our four period games, two periods the player plays in his strongest position or deemed what his most comfortable position is. Mm -hmm. Then he'll have one development period where uh, he might be a right back so then we play him on the left-sided full-back so he gets use of his left foot. Um, he might be uh, a full-back that we then put in a higher position so he can get an understanding of what the player in front of him needs, etc. So every, every rotation we, we do will always have a benefit to. Um, once we go into the youth development phase, then positions do start taking more of a part. Um, and again, we try to manage it so it's not overexposure to many different positions. Um, the key is dialogue, always when we have the reviews with the players and the parents, because they're such an important part of this as well. We try to explain why we're doing something, potentially why we're not playing them in a position. We have had, like all clubs have, a, a mum or a dad will say, but he's a striker, yeah, sure. but you're playing him at, at, at left wing. And it's <clears> like, well, we try to have that dialogue and we also try to share those positions. So if a family do feel that, we do try to expose them to that position as well. Um, because the last thing we can have is, is 
parents of a player and the club pulling in different directions because the player's the one that's going to suffer. Mm-hmm. So we always try to make sure we work on that, that relationship and we kind of have a diamond relationship between the player, the parent, the club and the school. And we try to make sure that that's always, um, everyone's included in, in, in any dialogue or communication that's relevant to them. The school doesn't need to know about a positional conversation with the parent, but um, in, in terms of any difficult times at the club, might be learning deficiencies, whatever it may be, if we can have that open dialogue, then we might be helping academic performance as much as football performance. Um, but going back to the positional elements, then as they start going into the older age groups, they start really then being refined into certain areas of the pitch. Um, again, our, our philosophy is a, is a quite a fluid formation. Um, so players, we are we expect them to rotate within the game. Mm-hmm. And again, if we go back to Jay Rodriguez in, in my time at the club, you know he played as a left winger, a right winger, a number ten, a centre forward. So that's kind of what we're trying to say is that if you are an attacking player, then we're going to try and help you to be competent in all of these positions. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, hopefully for our first team and the national team, a player that can play in a wider range of positions is is a more attractive proposition. Now, if it's um, exit routes because a player has come to the end of his time with the club, Again, that versatility might be something that gets in the contract at the next club. Mm-hmm. So we think it's not just about tactical be- and te- technical benefit, it's actually career benefit for the yeah, player sure. as well, uh, which we think is really important. It seems that the way the game's heading as well, that versatility isn't going to be um, a kind of code word for not quite good enough in any one position, but it's almost going to be an added benefit. I think particularly in the forward half of uh, the field, the final third especially, all the best players in the world currently are very fluid and are equally comfortable and equally almost world class on the left, on the right, through the middle. So Gareth Bale is a prime example. He's just lethal wherever you stick him in that further pitch and he's now at a team where there's three similar players yep. interchanging and it's almost impossible to defend against. That seems the way the game's going. So it does seem that specialising on a position, particularly for players only 12, 13 years old and isn't going to have a real career for a decade yet, seems a little bit short-sighted. And are you very conscious of that within the academy? And does that conversation of, look, you're not preparing for now, you're preparing for a decade in time, does that come up in the academy on a regular basis? It, it does, it does. We, we, uh, we always try to start with the end in mind and then work our way back. Mm-hmm. Certainly the positional um, requirements in the, as you say, the under-12s, for us in the younger age groups in the 11 v 11, it's about giving them the understanding of a position. So what are the requirements of a right back? What are the requirements mm-hmm. of a central midfield player? We want to give them that foundation knowledge that is relevant in most, if not all, systems. <coughs> then as they start going and their bodies develop and physically they get to a point where they're not going to be in growth spurts and they get a better understanding of what their body can and can't do. The way the game is, that will also influence in what positions players play. And then you can see if rotation is is possible or is it a player um, who is going to be very much beneficial to stay in one area of the pitch. So again, I think it is, it's always on an individual basis, mm-hmm. but it's, I don't think you can, you can be rigid anymore because when you talk about the Real Madrid front line and players like Gareth Bale and players like Messi at Barcelona, the young players at our academy are watching these players week in, week out, and they want to replicate and they want to be them. So we, it would be silly for us to say, well, no, we, we, we're not encouraging that. We just want you to be straight lines and up and down, and because that's not the game anymore. There's 
it's important to teach the, the fundamentals of every position, but players want to rotate, they want to come in off the line, they want to overlap, you know, these things are really important and they're written within our, our curriculum. Um, now, what we're in the process of doing at the moment is we're just trying to create some best practice clips of the best players in the world um, that the players will be able to, to access as, as another method where we, we can share our philosophy through Gareth Bale, through Cristiano Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to ensure that those clips mirror our kind of ultimate strategy of, of player development. Um, there'll be some Jay Rodriguez clips in there as well. I'm sure, I'm so, sure. Um, so no, really that, important. That seems like players. something though that grassroots coaches can do that as well. Whilst their players might be on a different pathway and their, uh, their end might be slightly different, it's still something that grassroots coaches can do. And I think technology has progressed so rapidly in the last five years, particularly smartphone technology. There's so much you can do that age of coaching. And in the question earlier about differentiation, you, you did talk about how technology and the way the coaches use technology is a big part of the way you try and have a progressive academy. Just talk about some of the ways in which that's used as well as the video side of things. We, uh, we're starting to get into the iPad culture. So certainly in our foundation phase, um, the coaches have used it to show good practice of, of top footballers, mm-hmm. but equally they'll film individual performance and then bring the player to the, to the iPad and show them straight away afterwards. So we've used that as a method. We also use the analysis suite at our training ground before training to, um, again, show some some good practice. Um, With the older age groups now, we're incorporating uh, more depth to the the analysis. So um, historically, we've done more team and and group analysis, but now we're starting to get into more individual analysis, which is linking to the learning objectives under the EPPP structure. we're going to start next season. Um, something I went to Chelsea as part of my pro license last year, um, and their players will actually clip their own performance before the coach then sits with them, mm-hmm. which I think is a brilliant idea. Um, we see that as, as having many benefits to the player, yeah. um, not only reviewing their performance, getting used to technology, but also career skills, IT skills that might benefit them if they don't go on to be a footballer. Um, so we want to look to do that this coming season. So I think technology plays a part all across the spectrum of the age groups, but it looks different as you go through different environments. Every player loves watching themselves back. Mm-hmm. Um, this season we're going to start filming more of our, our foundation and youth development phase games. Um, going back to your question earlier, some of the challenges of being a Cat 3, sometimes it's difficult to do that. Equipment, staffing, um, away games where facilities may not, you know, you go to a, a, a Cat 1 and there's gantries and, and scaffolding platforms which you can film off. Um, we currently use the tripod off the back of our buggy in the training ground. Um, but ultimately I think the most important thing is you find a way to do it because it, again it's for the players. Um, and when you, you mentioned about grassroots coaches or, or even academy coaches, if you want to do something enough you'll find a way to do it. Um, and, and I think that's a really important tool for any young coach wanting to find their way in the game. Um, I think to have a curious mind and, and to challenge thinking in a positive way. Um, I remember it happened to me when I was at Southampton. I was the under-10s coach, but I went in for a day and I watched Steve Wigley working with, with uh, the under-21s at the time, people like Matt Mills and people like that. 
and I was stood back from the pitch and he walked over and, and I didn't know, I didn't think he knew who I was. And he came up to me and he asked me what I would change in his session. Mm. I wasn't prepared to, for, for that question because I'd never thought that way. But that was a great lesson for me that even elite coaches and the coaches that you are role models and potential mentors, you can still challenge their thinking or you can challenge your own thinking about their methods in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've tried to eradicate con- uh, kind of constructive uh, but critical feedback to make it more a positive challenging mentality and I think that's really important, really important. Mm-hmm. For, for young coaches, I, I expect our young coaches to, if they see me, ask me a question why we do something um, because I think the most important thing in any decision in our academy, whether it's coaching, whether it's team selection, whatever it might be, there has to be a reason behind it, a logical reason. If there's not a logical reason for it, then I'll always question why we're doing it. Is that one of the main pieces of advice you'd offer to coaches, no matter what level they're working at, is just to challenge themselves and to think about why things are done, the story they're done? I think so. I think... Uh, we, we often ask things of players but we forget to kind of put ourselves in that same process so we ask challenge players every day in training to challenge their comfort zone but sometimes we don't challenge our own comfort zone so I think that's really important um, I think it's important to highlight it has to be done the right way sometimes opinions can become a bit too grand and, and the challenge then becomes a bit demeaning to the person working I think you have to challenge people in the right way not a as I say, it's got to be a positive challenge. Um, and ultimately, you've got to listen to what's said as well, because if, if you're going to ask someone why they do something, then I think it's important you hear them and then share ideas if there's other ways maybe it can work or uh, beneficial ways to, to, to do the same thing. Really important. And just to finally, just finish off, you touched upon um, throughout some of the answers about how we're doing this next year. It seems like there is a, there's a constant kind of iteration and improvement process goes on. How do you deal then with somebody who has a very uh, dogmatic view of this is the way forward and they may have you know, visited Ajax, they've been to Spain, we need to do it exactly like this. How do you kind of have those conversations without becoming like you know, a religious war? How do you debate? I think, uh, I think the challenge is, and I think most coaches and, and, and academy staff now are, are students of the game. Um, and things come and go suddenly there's a fashion of certain things I think the dangerous thing is is because Ajax do it this way or Bayern Munich do it that way or Barcelona do it that way if you try to purely replicate what they do I think I don't know if it will ever work but ultimately if you find what you believe in and it's always said coaches are the biggest thieves you take bits from everywhere we're I personally really like the the Cova method of, of skill development, yeah. um, but I see benefits to futsal, the Brazilian soccer school um, program that that we used to work with at Bournemouth. Um, so I think it's incorporating many ideas, but ultimately, if there's anyone that kind of feels it's got to be done a certain way, we have to sit down and talk about, but particularly for ourselves, what is the right way for Burnley Football Club? Because you know we, we talk about contact time. We can't have the contact time, so we have we can't replicate some very successful models. Mm-hmm. So it's always important that we always get back to what our philosophy is, what our targets are, what our vision is. And as you said, it is always a, a, an evolving process. Um, I think what it looks like today, it will look different in two years' time. What it looks like then will be different in another two years' time. 
Um, and by that time, you know, a new model will come out and everyone will be talking about the, you know, the way they do it at Porto or the way they do it at, um, you know, a, a team in Russia with their academy. I, I don't know. But um, for us, I think we've always got to stand true to what we're trying to develop. And, and as I alluded to, we've influenced some people like Martin at the FA. We're always reviewing what we do and always trying to be better. And if new technologies or new methodologies come in that we can incorporate, brilliant. Um, I think particularly since Dan Ashworth has gone into the FA, I think the FA is, is a very progressive organisation mm -hmm. and looking at the different courses now and the different mentality to the FA working with clubs. We've got an under-16 goalkeeper, or we've got a young goalkeeper in the England under-16 set up at the moment. The dialogue between the FA and ourselves has been brilliant, um, allowing us to go up and watch the sessions and incorporating us in uh, what they do. Um, that's new and, and, and I think that will only enhance our programme, enhance our coaches and ultimately enhance our players. So I don't think there will ever be a rigid way that any, any one club does it. I think Ajax have their philosophy mm -hmm. and I'm sure that evolves. You know, yep. um, Chelsea have their philosophy and I'm sure that evolves the same as Barcelona. But they've got deeply ingrained values and, and principles that will always remain. But I think they just always review their their, their yeah. practices. I think that's key. I think you talked about you have a finite amount of contact time and the grassroots coaches that I work with and, and across the country deal with the exact same problem is that there's so much information and so little time, you need a system by which you can prioritise. And it seems that the values, the principles, the philosophy and, and having that family club mentality, that is the framework which allows you to make the decisions of which do we do, which don't we do, definitely we try, which don't we try. Yeah. Jason, thanks very much for your time, it's been much appreciated. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. What's up, man?